You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Hi, this is Robert Wright, and I wanted to alert you to the fact that this is a kind of unusual edition of The Wright Show. For one thing, the conversation you'll hear was originally a live stream on YouTube, and I had never hosted a live stream before, so that was kind of strange. But more important is that I had this conversation in memory of my friend Michael Brooks, a very successful journalist and podcaster who died suddenly at the age of 36 a few weeks ago. Now, the first part of this podcast is a dialogue with Josh Summers, a friend and co-author of Michael's. Josh and I discuss something called cognitive empathy, which I consider one of the most important resources in the world, and which I know Michael also considered very important. In fact, I had been scheduled to have a conversation with Michael about cognitive empathy on his show, The Michael Brooks Show, on July 30th. But then, only 10 days before that, he suddenly developed a blood clot and passed away. The second part of this podcast is a conversation with Michael's mother, Donna. I had never met Donna, and I really enjoyed getting her perspective on Michael's development and his worldview, and I really appreciate her coming on and talking about him on the day that, as it happens, would have been his 37th birthday. So I hope you'll give the whole thing a listen. And by the way, if you find the cognitive empathy part interesting, you should know that I'll be doing another YouTube live stream with Josh on cognitive empathy this Thursday, August 20th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. If you want to tune in, just check my Twitter feed, at Robert Ryder, on Thursday for the link you'll need to click in order to join us live. Okay, so here's the podcast in Michael's memory. I hope you enjoy it. Okay, so I think we're streaming, Josh, which is success. Congrats. Um, how you doing? I'm okay. How are you doing? I'm doing fine, uh, given the fact that I'm not exactly a veteran live streamer and this, I'm filled with anxiety about something going horribly wrong. But aside from that. I'm so okay. this is your debut well, live stream. You, you know, it's funny. The uh, Well, I've never done a live stream for my show. I mean, I should say, I guess, uh, technically, welcome to the right show, because I'm going to put this on the right show podcast feed. But it's a very um, unconventional edition of The Right Show because um, I never have done a live stream. Uh, and the only time I did one was on Michael Brooks's show. Um, and uh, so I have observed the master do, do a mm -hmm. live stream, but I've never done one myself. But this seems to be functioning. So um, let me say that, first of all, this conversation is in memory of Michael. Um uh, most people tuning in now, at least, uh, I'm sure know who Michael was, that he passed away a few weeks ago. Uh, and if anybody doesn't know him, they should search uh, Twitter to see the kinds of tributes that poured in um, right after he died unexpectedly from all kinds of people, including very prominent people in journalism and politics. Um, let me say a little something about how this came about. First of all, let me say to people, you are Josh Summers. I'm Robert Wright. Did I say that? Maybe not. You're Josh Summers, well-known uh, yoga teacher, among many other things, conversant in the Eastern uh, wisdom traditions, I would say. We, you and I have talked a lot, and you, and you knew Michael very well, um, and in fact, co-authored a book with Michael, 
on uh, on on Buddhism. What is the Buddha's playbook? It really wasn't on Buddhism. It was more applied meditation book. Applied meditation. Okay, and um, so uh, and you have a podcast, The Everyday Sublime, and I think you just did a um, a, a show about Michael Wright. So that's there if people want to go check it out. Okay, so um, here is the way uh, this came about. Um, three days or four days before Michael passed away, um, he emailed me. I have the email here. Said, hey, Bob, do you want to join me for a live half hour TMBS segment on cognitive empathy and non-reactive politics around 8, 10 p.m. NYC time on July 30th? I emailed back the next day, said, sure. Um, and we were set to go. And then, um, you know, three days later, I woke up from a nap and checked out Twitter. And I just couldn't believe it. You know, um, he was gone. Uh, and I, you know, I was, um, you know, watching the tributes poured in. I paid tribute myself. One thing I saw was that somebody was circulating a video of a riff he had done the night before. And he used the word empathy. Um, so I circulated that and said, everybody should check this out. It was really very, very, very nice and moving about the importance of extending um, empathy uh, globally beyond national bounds and, and so on. Um, and then uh, I guess a, a, about a week um, later, uh, I realized that um, the night before we were scheduled to have our, our, our conversation on his show about cognitive empathy. Um, and I'll get into what, you know, cognitive empathy is exactly um, a little different from uh, empathy is ordinarily understood. And I tweeted that, you know, hey, we were uh, Michael and I were going to talk about empathy. This is another opportunity to check out this riff. He this great riff he did on empathy. So I circulated it again. I got it. I got a, a, a tweet back from one of his uh, fans, uh, Twitter handle mom for progress. She said, this means you need to do an hour stream on the topic by yourself or with someone else who has a keen understanding of it. That will also honor his memory. Give us that hour. So I briefly considered doing it myself and found that a terrifying prospect. Then immediately thought of you because of your history with Michael. Um, and then um, once I got in touch with you about it, uh, you, uh, because you know Michael's mother, um, wound up arranging for her to join us um, in about 20, 25 minutes, which is great. I've never met her um, and I'm really looking forward to it. So... Um, you and I are going to talk a little about uh, cognitive empathy and our understanding of its relevance to politics and, and personal life, because I should say up front, I'm a true believer. I mean, I, I think if there is one human resource, I would, I would hope that human beings could cultivate more fully, it is cognitive empathy and that it could uh, help us on everything from a global scale to a personal scale. And, and I don't personally think it's, it's going too far to say it could play a role in, um, you know, saving the world from uh, a kind of a grim fate that I think increasingly we can all imagine because of the way things have been heading. Um, so I want to talk about that with you. And then you and I are going to uh, talk about it next week, do another live stream on Thursday night because it's a rich topic. We'll, we'll barely scratch the surface tonight. Um, in my past conversations with you, you've always uh, helped kind of stretch my thinking about this. Um, so I think the, the, the dialogue will evolve. Um, but 
you know, and we'll have a little time to talk about that tonight. But first, I'd like you to talk a little about Michael. I, my relationship with Michael, uh, I was on his show a couple of times. He was on mine a couple of times. I only had one chance to really sit down with him for a couple of hours in person, one on one and talk. Um, but uh, I've known him for a while. Uh, I was impressed uh, by so many things about him. But you uh, you knew him better than I did. Uh, so why don't you why don't you talk about about the history? Yeah. And well, thank you. And, and just not to disappoint uh, Michael's Twitter fan um, in terms of getting a, a keen a person with keen understanding of cognitive empathy. I'm, I'm probably not that individual, although I'm enthusiastic, very enthusiastic about it. Um, so Michael and I, well, the, the, the inter- overlap with all of us is quite interesting, I think, in that I met both of you on what was your first meditation retreat and was Michael and my first meditation retreat. I met Michael about three or four years before meeting you. And uh, he was only 18 at the time. Wow. And, and um, he was quite precocious, um, you know, had, had ideas about running for Senate at some point. Um, and he had big ideas and was interested in big ideas. And roughly nine or 10 years into our friendship, um, we both were starting to read some of the popular books being uh, written on the field of beha- from the field of behavioral economics. And behavioral economics was trying to identify various cognitive biases that distort a perception of the world or a felt sense of the world that in those distortions, they lead people to make suboptimal decisions either for themselves or collectively. And uh, kind of our speculative thesis at the time was that the practice of mindfulness, which would be giving, bringing light to those cognitive biases and the, and the, 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 so the sensations and feelings that those biases generate, but the mindfulness could be a, a tool of, of maybe several tools to help uh, transcend those biases and, and lead to better outcomes. Um, and Amen. We, yeah, we, and we kind of, you know, we wrote a little book on it, uh, with just sort of a cursory treatment of the, of the topic. Um, but, you know, after I met you and, and started getting, got, got exposed to your line of thought and work, um, A, I became a huge fan. Um, and, you know, I think Michael was very much already aware of you and, and your colleague, Mickey Kaus from Blogging Heads TV. And um, when Michael and I would get together, we would watch your dialogues. And of course, Michael had his impersonations of both you and Mickey. <laughs> He, he spared um, me. He spared me of those. Uh, you, you were easy. To, you were easy to imitate. Just one word only. Just Mickey in various pitches. Um, but I think you were. We, we learned that you were writing your book, The Evolution of God, and you were coming around to give a. Uh, it was published, and you're giving a, a, a talk at the Harvard Bookstore. And so Michael, that would, be, wanted, that would be 2009. Yeah, about 2009. Yeah. And and um, Michael had this idea that we were going to come come to your talk at the bookstore and then inveigle you to come out and have a drink with us. And we would, and Michael wanted to pitch you this idea that mindfulness could be a way to transcend or mitigate the ill effects of cognitive bias. And um, it is amazing. Given the way things unfolded. So go ahead and, and uh, yeah, yeah, well, we can play that out, but the, the, um, you basically blew us off. Now in my defense, a, I don't drink and B I, I was on a book tour. I probably had to catch an early plane, if I had it to do all over again, I'd, I'd blow off the plane. But, uh, but anyway, that's, that's my but, defense. 
Yes, but that's the point is though that, you know, Michael had that idea and then that a version of that thesis basically germinated into your book, I think, Why Buddhism is True. Um, right, which came out in 2017 and which was, that was when he contacted me. I had been, I had, had a little contact with Michael, but that's when he emailed me and asked me to be on his show. And then that led to uh, much more in the way of a relationship with him. Yeah. Right. And what, and the other uncanny thing for me was that back then too, I mean, he was given to kind of grandiose pronouncements at times. And, um, you know, in 2009, he, even though you blew us off, he said, oh, you know, <laughs> we're going to be rubbing shoulders with Bob at some point. And I thought he was, there's no way in hell this would ever occur. Um, but lo and behold, independently, you know, you and I met on subsequent retreats and kind of right. connected more. And then you had found Michael or Michael found you through his channels and it, it did kind of all blend and come together in a way. Um, and now, obviously, and, I, and I wound up picking up that theme uh, that you would hope to implant, implant in my brain. Maybe you did implant it uh, in some way, uh, non-verbally in some uh, mystical way, but um, you know, the idea that cognitive biases and, and this, this is related, very much related to cognitive empathy um, yeah. that, that, that cognitive biases um, can be eroded through mindfulness um, and mindfulness meditation. And there are lots of kinds of cognitive biases. There's a kind that, um, you know, there's, there's, there's uh, you know, the book, what is it? Thinking Fast and Slow by Dan Kahneman yeah. uh, and, and his co-author, I guess. Um, they don't, they focus more on the kind of, I would say, almost economic uh, ones, you know, like uh, why, why is it that we, um, uh, loss aversion, for example. Yeah. Why do we like, hang I, on I won't pay $10 for a mug like this. And yet if I've already got one, you'll have to pay me 20 to get, to get, to get, to part with it. The, the, the paradox is like that. I, I think um, I'm more interested in the less economic cognitive biases, the ones that, that lead us to judge people unfairly and, and that right. warp our perception of people. And we know more and more about those. Right. Um, and, uh, and so it's kind of when you told me, and this is after Michael passed, that you you two had planned to approach me with that uh, with that proposal. It kind of blew my mind because it became uh, central to my kind of basic sermon after after that book of mine came out, after the Buddhism yeah. book came out. Somewhere on Facebook, Lam, there is a message that we sent to you through your dog's Facebook account. With not just the pitch, but also the um, the the pitch for a dinner with us. Actually, it wasn't a drink; it was dinner. But now, maybe that's what planted it in my brain. I mean, I don't. I'm not very faithful to my Facebook page. Although, back when my dog, can you hear my dog? No, I can't hear your dog. He's barking in the background. Anyway, he has a Facebook page, as you suggested. Um, Well, let me just say though, one one thing about Michael though was that I mean, he was. He really did have a, 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 he was a very big political conscious, consciousness when I met him. And that, and that seems to just ex, expand it exponentially. Um, but he also had a very firm conviction that uh, in terms of political change and, and development um, and reform, one of the key ingredients was kind of an updated consciousness of the individuals within these, these political systems. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't just about, you know, changing the system or external material conditions per se it was it was really about um making sure that the 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 level of consciousness of the individual was able to first literally perceive 
more and more of the whole, in this case, the globe as, as an aspect or direct um, aspect of themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, um, so let me, let me say a little bit about, as I said, we'll, we'll have a limited amount of time this week, but we'll continue the conversation next week. Let me say a little bit about what, what cognitive empathy is and how it connects to kinds of uh, cognitive biases. You know, usually when people talk about empathy, they mean they're talking about what's called emotional empathy, you know, feeling their pain, sharing in the emotion of someone, identifying with the emotion of someone. Um, cognitive empathy is in a way more prosaic and simple sounding, although it can be very hard because it seems as if the br our brain is engineered to actually keep us from doing it in certain cases. And that's what gets us into trouble. It gets us into personal trouble. It gets us into wars um, and so on. But cognitive empathy is just seeing uh, someone's perspective, understanding how they view the world. And uh, if you want to see how it can get us into trouble, um, you know, Dick Cheney, um, shortly before the Iraq war, said, I think we will be greeted as liberators. Well, if you'd done a better job of putting yourself in the shoes of the Iraqi people, you would have understood, first of all, there's a lot of different kinds of Iraqi people. A number of them think they're actually benefiting from this regime. There are these different um, sectarian traditions and, and, and so on. Um, so they just hadn't done the work of actually trying to anticipate the perspective of the Iraqi people. Um, and I would say the same thing about uh, actually Saddam Hussein. You know, when, when, uh, when he did a little bit of token resistance you know, made in, made UN weapons inspectors cool their heels or didn't want them to do certain things. It was easy to, if you really if you really tried to understand why, given his domestic politics, he would do that even if he didn't have anything to hide. But everyone concluded, oh, he's got something to hide. We have to invade and so on. So, um, you know, that's a lack of cognitive empathy can get you into huge trouble. Um, it's Give, give an example or two on the on the on the, on the domestic front, too. Um, where you think sure. where you see well, there's well, a lack just, of just in, in terms of how in terms of how our brains open it up and shut it down. Okay, like I have kids; they're grown up now. But if they were playing on the playground, and I saw one of them do something mean to a kid, I might say, um, "Well." You know, she saw that kid as a threat or she was emulating this other kid that she respects who is doing something mean to that kid. And very often, I think I'd be on target. I was I was I was accurately understanding her because she's my daughter and I want to excuse her bad behavior. Now, sometimes that that itself can misfire. You can just imagine you can come up with with invalid rationales. But I assure you that if some other if some child is mean to my child, OK, um, I am not going to be that charitable. My explanation is going to be, that's a bad kid. That's a mean kid. And I'm not, I'm not going to even look for a perspective that might explain why the kid did what the kid did. Whereas there must be an explanation, you know, didn't come out of nowhere. And, 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 and in general, I mean, okay, so this, this hooks up with the idea of cognitive biases nicely, because we now know about a cognitive bias called attribution error. Okay. And here's the way it works. Um, you know, originally they thought that attribution error worked like this. It was, it was very, it was kind of one dimensional. 
which is that um, when we're trying to explain somebody's behavior, why they did something, um, we overemphasize their nature and underemphasize their environment. So if somebody in front of me in the checkout line is, a, is rude to the clerk, we say that person's a jerk. That's a, a kind of natural reaction. We don't say, well, maybe they just found out they have a fatal disease, maybe X, Y, Z. We've all been rude to a clerk after all, and it doesn't mean we're all horrible people. But then as they did more work, they found out it's more subtle. Actually, with our friends and our allies, if they do something good, we attribute it to their nature, to their disposition, to the kind of people they are. If they do something bad, we explain it away. It was peer group pressure. It was, it was, you know, whatever. Or if it's our kids, they didn't get their nap, right? Uh, with enemies and rivals, it's the other way around. If they do something bad, that's the kind of people they are. If they do something good, um, then uh, that's just, it's just circumstance or just showing off, whatever. So you can see how that bias, which is pretty well documented, gets in the way of accurately understanding people's actual perspectives on the world and their actual motivations in doing things. And, and, your, and your basic thesis is that you, you want to be able to do that. You want to be able to understand their perspective and what's driving their actions and motivations so that you're better able to engage with them and not misread their intent, right? Right. I mean, one of the great starters of wars in the world is to misread things another nation does out of defensive motivation because they find you threatening to read that as offensive. Okay. That's what it's a well-documented by political scientists source of wars. And the reason that happens so much is because once you're starting to see a country as an adversary, if they do something that you consider bad, aggressive, belligerent, you're not looking for, 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 for an explanation based in circumstance. You're just saying, yeah, that's the way they are. And that's why people who want to get us into wars work so hard to demonize uh, the leaders of the other country at, during the run up to war. Because if they can get you to consider the other leader evil, then, th then they are going to shut down your cognitive empathy when it's going to most matter. And you're, gonna, and, and you're not going to understand why something that seems belligerent or recalcitrant may not be offensive in motivation. And not only do they shut down your cognitive empathy, it sounds like they're also amplifying your emotional empathy. There seems to be an inverse relationship there. Well, they, they play, and this is an interesting thing. So I should say, um, let me say a couple of things. If people have questions that they want you and I to address in our next conversation, they should send them to uh, nonzero.news, N-O-N-Z-E-R-O, one word, dot news at gmail. Dot com. And then um, secondly, just say that uh, where that address comes from is I have something called the non-zero newsletter, which is available at nonzero.org. And the recent the most recent issue was kind of um, devoted to empathy, a couple of aspects. And, and it included a, an interview with Paul Bloom, the psychologist who writes about when emotional empathy, kind of the more familiar kind of empathy misfires. And one kind of misfiring is that is that people um, who want to get us into wars try to evoke, harness emotional empathy in ways that will help them out. So during the first in the run of the first Iraq war, the so-called Persian Gulf War, um, the, there was this congress, these congressional hearings and these supposed Iraqi. I think they were supposedly nurses or something. Turned out it was fake. They weren't. But they got up and testified about how people from Saddam's regime un unplugged the incubators 
uh, in hospitals and kill babies. It was totally made up. But it, it was um, it turned out they worked for a PR firm or something, the, these supposed nurses. And um, but they were invoking actual empathy. And this would be I think Paul would agree. Paul Bloom would agree. This is an example where emotional empathy can misfire. Um, and sometimes when it's based in truth, it can still uh, it can still draw us in um, further than it, it's wise to go. And, and that's why I think cognitive empathy can be a good check on emotional empathy, although emotional empathy is very often a very valuable thing and is an important resource as well. Right. So on, on balance, emotional empathy has both positive and positive firings and, and negative firings, you could say. I, th I think so. I think yeah. it's, uh, yeah, I, I mean, yeah, it, it can lead us, you know, because we naturally empathize emotionally with our close relatives sometimes in ways that are not good for us or them, um, for example. Yeah, I, I do think it's important to make that distinction because, or like that point, because at least if I anticipate some of the members of the audience, they probably think that emotional empathy is, is a sign of a caring heart. And if you don't have emotional empathy, you're kind of a, basically on, on a spectrum of a sociopath. Which you are probably if you don't have any. If you don't and, have any. And, but and if, I but should it, say, by the way, that a sociopath can misuse cognitive empathy. Cognitive empathy can be misused by a person with malicious intent. But, uh, you know, because they can read you and use that yeah. to exploit you. Um, but happily psychopaths are a small percentage of the sociopaths psychopaths are a small percentage of the population um so you know i i should say generally i see this whole discussion as kind of being in a way a subset of uh i mean buddhist buddhist meditation is not the only way to work on your cognitive empathy you can just um you, can Do you just want to Point you want to sort, sort, sort of diagram out your 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 little your not your little but your basic idea of how me a meditative process could help one improve their cognitive empathy. Yeah, I would say first of all, the the general premise of Buddhism is that the reason we suffer and the reason we make other people suffer is that we don't see the world clearly. Okay, and this is an example of that. And uh, as you know very well, mindfulness meditation. Um, well, I guess I would say to get back to when our cognitive empathy is warped by us putting somebody in, say, the rival or enemy category, that's an example of our cognitive process being steered by our, our feelings, by our emotions, right? And mindfulness meditation can make you more aware of that and better able to head it off at, at the past. That's one example. Again, you don't have to meditate to get better at cognitive empathy. You can just read more about, for example, China right now, about what, what are the people they're really thinking? Um, why do many of them in fact support the regime, contrary to the idea that you might get in the American media, um, which is something I wrote about in, in uh, the newsletter this week. But, um, uh, you know, so, and I, and I know you have different ideas than I do. I know from past conversations. Um, well, different well, but we, we don't have time to get into that this week yeah. but i want to i want to uh yeah plant some seeds yeah yeah plant some uh, seeds on that yeah um i mean i guess the you know it's, i understand that it's there are non like meditation seems to be a practice a discipline like literally a training regime whereby the the, the, the capacity of cognitive empathy 
I can see being strengthened. It, if it's left to uh, non-disciplinary uh, measures, I mean, you don't have a, 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 a regime or a, a, a program of training to, high, to develop it. I do wonder how it's, would it, I mean, I, I understand some reading uh, more, more broadly and from a variety of perspectives could bring that, but to the average person, I'm kind of wondering what else might be a way to, to, to bolster that. I think uh, you're making me realize for the first time, and by the way, uh, I think Michael's mother is going to join us any minute now. So as soon as she does, we'll, we'll shut up about this and, uh, uh, or, or continue it as she sees fit. Uh, but certainly right. I want to talk about Michael, among other things with her. Um, you're making me think that uh, for the first time that maybe the discipline of uh, meditation is particularly useful in your everyday personal life. Uh, because there's so many things pushing and pulling your mind and warping your cognition and making cognitive empathy in some circumstances hard. Geopolitics is the same way if you feel strongly about a particular country, say, but I do think in the realm of geopolitics, plain old education can really do a lot. And the problem sometimes is just the way media is structured and the way the messaging gets sent out. And that was something Michael was totally attuned to. The, the one live stream I did with him actually was about China. And the threat that we'll get dragged into a, a, a long Cold War with China, which he was very much against. And that I don't know that we use the word cognitive empathy, but we went we were both trying to cultivate it, uh, I think, without talking about it and, and expand the awareness of how uh, the world is viewed by the by uh, the, Ch the Chinese leadership and the Chinese people. And my own view is that nobody should be off limits. You should try to apply cognitive empathy to everyone. It 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 can't hurt as long as you are, you know, of, of goodwill. It doesn't mean forgiving every, everybody for everything they do. It, do. it doesn't mean nobody has to be uh, punished. Or you don't have to stand up to anybody. Um, you know, maybe something to think about between now and next week, um, you know, in mindfulness practice, there's the concept of a mindfulness bell. So it could be mm -hmm. a little trigger or and to use a behavioral economics term, a nudge in the environment that reminds you to maybe, you know, stop for a second, take a few breaths, be fully present and kind of cultivate in a punctuated way through your day, cultivate um, a quality of presence. And it might be good to kind of think of cognitive empathy bells. Like what, you know, what could, what could be a way, a, a, a cue to, to, to the mind to, to, to raise that question? Like what, how, how else might I be able to see this? Cause it, cause you know, I mean, I know myself, once I get into a, an emotional zone with something, you know, things start to move quite fast in, in terms of the thinking fast and slow model, but it's, it's very difficult to, to, to step out of that once the, once the flood has begun. Yeah. I mean, in general with mindfulness, the problem is forgetting. I mean, right. It's like forgetting to do it. It seems so easy, like on a retreat or something. Um, the, uh, now I am, uh, so I'm hoping Donna will join us shortly. Um, let me if, see if uh, I'm going to check my phone quickly to see yeah, if I got We it. have uh, uh, our our tech guru, Brian, is standing by and she knows uh, to call him if she has trouble. But uh, we can, um, you know, we can uh, continue the conversation until she until she joins us. Um, the. Uh, you know, it's funny, I was. Uh, I listened today to a conversation with Michael that I had on my show. And um, it just reminded me how easy 
he was to like and how easy he was to have a conversation with. Uh, I mean, if anything, I was annoyed by how hard I was making it at times at the beginning. <laughs> um, but uh, and how much he had thought about, you know, it, it was really a profitable exchange for me. Well, yeah. And if I can just say that, um, quite honestly, I didn't know how he achieved that level of understanding. Uh, I mean, he read and his mother will probably testify that in a second. But he also just seemed, it just seemed to come in through osmosis in a way. He'd just wake up and, and, and suddenly he could talk voluminously about all sorts of stuff. And, um, you know, the phrase he used in meditation and then we, we wanted to bring in the book was this idea of panoramic specificity. And I got a tweet from one of his colleagues at the, at the majority report saying he was still talking about this, how to, how to maintain an extremely broad view. And he, I, he was wanting to hold a global view of things, but also have having a, a very detailed, granular, specific knowledge of the relationships and context of all the little, of all the individual pieces. And um, that, I, I mean, it, I don't know how he had that ability. It was kind of preternatural and just yeah, awesome. I also just admired his courage. And I'd like to ask Donna where he got it. I mean, as I, I wasn't kidding when I said that when I thought about the prospect of doing a solo live stream, I was filled with terror and he, he, he did it. I, I watched him do it. I mean, he, he, you know, started the show, built it up into a very substantial thing. Um, he, as a teenager, as a teenager, I know he had experience doing some stand up comedy, which that obviously was maturing into his, uh, into his punditry. Um, Cause he, I mean, he was able to do this kind of double layered caricature where he would mock or impersonate one personality juxtaposed against characteristics or traits of another personality. So you get things like right wing Nelson Mandela and, you know, the uh, Barack Obama, who was maybe a member of ISIS or something like it, it was just these ridiculous cat caricatures, but they really, uh, at least for me, they were kind of, they shook up your consciousness in a way. I mean, they, they blasted you out of your own, fixed sense of how things were and you really got to see, see things from a different perspective. So I think he was actually using his comedy as a lever of, of cognitive empathy in a way. I didn't know. Maybe, not so, a, maybe not so directly, but. I didn't know he'd been a stand-up comic. I'm not surprised. He, he did a great Clinton. Um, and he said a number of funny things in the conversation I'm talking about. Uh, I had a second conversation about his, 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 uh, his book, uh, against the web. I, I had him on my show about that and people should check that out about the intellectual dark web. Um, and, uh, you know, which is very, very pertinent now with what with uh, cancel culture and everything, by the way, I just um, got a text from Brian saying he's standing by and hasn't heard from Donnie yet. Um, I mean, it's not like she was supposed to call him, but she, but we had said she, if she had um, so, tech trouble, I'm, she could call him. So you talk for a minute. I'm going to okay. text, send her a text. Okay, I will. Um, what should I uh, say? You're my guru, Josh. You tell me what to say. Oh, wait, wait. Uh, that Oh, she, uh, saved by Donna. She seems to be showing up now. She can probably hear there. Oh, she. Okay. She can probably hear us and we can hear her. Hi, Donna. Can you hear us? Okay, so um, there's probably a speaker issue. We are not, our mics aren't muted, so she needs to, um, Brian. Uh, I, I think yeah. I'm muted. I'm here. 
there you go. You can hear us. I'm yes. I'm having all kinds of technological problems, though. I'm familiar with that phenomenon. Believe me. They only crop up when you actually have to do something like this. Well, you know what happened is we were um, at the cemetery. Oh. Yeah. So I I think I I wasn't as um, strict with my time allotment as I needed to be. Oh, well, we just really appreciate you making the time for this. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, Donna. Hi. This is, meet Bob, right? Bob, Donna. Nice Bob. to meet you. Nice to um, meet you. Thank you for bringing Michael into the world. We were just uh, talking about uh, his many virtues. Um, uh, and uh, I don't know if you've had a chance to listen to our conversation. Uh, did you, you just got back from the cemetery within the last few minutes? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, let me tell you um, something I was just saying, um, which is that I really admired Michael's courage. Um, in, in, in the context for this was that the way this came about was one of Michael's uh, followers on Twitter, after they found out that I had been scheduled to do a conversation with Michael uh, several days uh, after he died, suggested I do a live stream myself. And I and I as I told Josh, I just did. I just don't uh, have the courage to just get up here by myself and do a live stream. There's something about it that's intimidating. I've seen Michael do it uh, and uh, he just seems uh, kind of fearless to me. And not to mention just the sheer kind of uh, is gumption too old fashioned a word to use that, that it took to get his whole the Michael Brooks show off the ground. And 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 I was curious as to I, I, I mean, I hope this, uh, first of all, meshes with your perception of Michael. I, I, I uh, but I'm but I'm uh, I'm wondering where. You know, maybe there are probably parents out there who would love to know how to instill this in a child, but maybe he was just born with it. Yeah, I it's interesting. I'm thinking like he, you know, he did stand up for a while. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it actually takes a lot more gumption to do stand up. Totally. Because, <laughs> um, you know, especially he did stand up at colleges or and at bars. And I mean, people are drunk, so they're not going to be nice. Um, and he also once when he was really pretty small. So, you know, his father was on uh, radio. So mm. from a young age, he had a real sense of being able to be in front of a mic like that was OK. And then I don't know, maybe it was like 11 or 12. There was this uh, very funky vegetarian restaurant near us that had, you know, open mics. And he just got up at open mic and started doing a routine about his grandfather. And. I, you know, I just think the reward, it wasn't like he was so brave because he wasn't. Well, I mean, he was, but he was brave because the the payoff and the benefit really outshone the hesitation. Because yeah. um, he's was very he's a very introverted person or was a very introverted person like he wasn't, you know, naturally like he could be mm -hmm. um, very effusive and very engaged with people, but he's super sensitive and really liked a lot of alone time. You know, he's like, like he would have liked your whole situation there, like give him a lot of books and he's really happy. <laughs> well, you know, that's the other thing is that he took ideas so seriously. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. 
he really knew his i mean he, he knew his marks he knew a lot of things uh josh was saying that uh I guess my first face-to-face -face contact with Michael was when Josh and Michael came to a book talk I gave. And he later said something about that book that only one other person has said. And when that person said it, I thought they really read the book. It was really, they understood uh, the, uh, something about, well, there was, this, there was a subtle sense in which it was Marxist without being ideologically Marxist. I won't get into it, but it really, um, it, it really impressed me. And, and, and the number of books he could opine intelligently on um, was just, uh, you know, I understand why he developed such a large following. Um, there are a lot of different ingredients, but um, was he, so he was always bookish. He actually didn't read till he was like 10 or 11. You know, we really? homeschooled him and, <laughs> you know, it was kind of nerve wracking that he didn't read. But once he started reading it, like accelerated from zero to 120 overnight. You know, first he read like it was the Redwall series. Josh, did you read that when you were a kid? The Redwall series, it was like about mice in an abbey and they had to fight evil rats. It was like this like British, you know, trilogy kind of stuff. But pretty soon after that, he like took Malcolm X's autobiography out of the library. Like he went... He, he always had a really, um, yeah, he always asked a lot of questions. Um, you know, I was saying we had a memorial service for him and one of the things I was talking about was how he always asked about spiritual things from a very young age. And we were not a religious family. You know, my ex-husband was secular Jewish and I grew up atheist even, you know, I had no religious upbringing, but we had, you know, spiritual orientations and Michael just always asked a lot of spiritual questions and he was always um, interested in, you know, he, before even Redwall, he was very interested in Robin Hood and the Ethereum legends. You, we got a lot of books on tape. I read to him a lot, um, but his capacity to understand things conceptually seems to be something he was really born with. You know, he wasn't, um, you know, we, he grew up in Pioneer Valley here, which is a pretty intellectual or can be a pretty intellectual place, you know, Amherst College and Mount Holyoke and oh, Smith. Okay. So, yeah, it's like there are a lot of academics here and, you know, a lot of people who think on more of a higher level. So um, he was never at loss, even when he was really young for kind of intellectual engagement. Mm -hmm. I'm curious why you homeschooled him. Were you like hippies oh, or what? Counterculture. Yeah, we were like counterculture hippies. You know, we were uh -huh. like, like, oh, don't destroy the authenticity of the child through. You know, and it was something that we actually had, I had to work through with him when he got older because the truth is he would have done great in school, you know, mm -hmm. he missed some of the, he did go to high school. He went to performing arts high school, um, which is a very interesting school here in the Valley too, Pioneer Valley Performing Arts Charter High School. Uh, very free, very, very free. But what was a benefit of homeschooling and then also the kind of high school he went to is that it was so open-ended, he could really follow his interests.
And I think that's part of what makes him so wide because that's what I think. It, yes, he has, he's really brilliant and he had a lot of um, intense capacity for, for being able to hold multiple ideas at one time. Like he didn't have to get like, okay, that's what I think now. That's what I think now. He would be like, oh, that's really interesting. And that's also this, and there's also that. So that I think maybe is innate, I don't know, but the wideness, he, he like really trusted his instincts with what he wanted to learn about. And I think that is really, that is gift of homeschooling. Hmm. You know, yeah. I just want to jump in just before I, so in case I don't get to ask this, um, but one of the things that I've been blown away by is, you know, the outpouring that he has received and I, you know, I think maybe like you, I didn't had no idea how huge that 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 audience that he had created was extended. I mean, it was worldwide. Um, and one of the questions that people have emailed me actually is they they kind of want to knowing that we wrote that book, they wanted to have a sense of what was the source of his compassion. I mean, I think I mean, it wasn't just his knowledge and his ability to 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 describe very detailed political dynamics and things like that. It was. It was infused with his heart, his heart. And that was, um, I think, an, an essential element to who he was and, and what he was doing. Um, and yeah. it, you know, so yeah. what, what's your sense of that? Was that innate too, or was that born um, of conditions? I think, first of all, I want to really acknowledge the question because I think a lot of the people who have been reaching out, like what's what's really surprised me and my daughter has been, how much people are reaching out like um, like I was homeless and Michael gave me hope or I was really depressed and Michael gave me hope or I met Michael only once, but he gave me these resources, which really, you know, kind of turned my life around. And that like, I mean, obviously he's my kid. So, you know, I felt like he was a person of integrity and kindness, but I didn't realize how much that came across to people that he never even interacted with personally. And um, I don't know, Josh, these are hard questions. Like, I don't know what people are born with. You know, I know that like I, even though he didn't go to Waldorf school, I was very influenced by that kind of like philosophy as a parent, that it's your job as a parent to um, from birth to age seven to really have your child have a right will like, it's almost like a simplistic ethical action. Like, you don't need a lot of understanding, but you behave well, you're good. And then um, from seven to 14, um, it, like more of an understanding of why you're behaving good and not just an intellectual understanding, but like empathy and feeling through art, through music, through philosophy, through writing. And then on that, the um, intellectual is built. So, I mean, definitely there was some thought given to that. Like, how do you build someone who has that kind of um, continuity? And certainly not every kid who even gets to go to Waldorf school, you know, their whole life has the amount of compassion he has. I mean, he is a person who could feel suffering very acutely and, you know, I think from like a Buddhist perspective that that knowledge of suffering also builds compassion and empathy. Um, you know, he was never uh, 
person who didn't feel from a young age, like he would sense like an animal suffering or, you know, he, he just mm -hmm. had a lot of that, that ability to feel what other people were feeling. Um, definitely a lot of the literature that we exposed him to when he was young was very, you know, I look back at it and I think, oh my gosh, like, was this just like too idealistic? You know, was this just too, it wasn't like, I don't know. Just even like his love for Robin Hood, like, I mean, <laughs> you know, that just. Well, that's. Doesn't seem like a bad thing to identify with Robin Hood. And I, I, can, I can see how that, that seems kind of consistent with uh, where he headed um, ideologically. Yeah. Yeah. And the Arthurian legends, too. Like somehow, like not specifically like that you needed this chalice, but that in all of these adventures that you would take, your personal integrity would be tested. So how do you meet that test for your personal integrity to shine? Um, he loved that kind of like he really, you know, at a, when he was a little older, he got very into Joseph Campbell, you know, the hero's journey. Hmm. Um, he took that really seriously. And I, I don't know. I have no idea how much of that's innate and how much that was the time, how much of that was the parenting. Like, I don't I don't really know. You said he took uh, an interest in spiritual issues. Josh met him, I guess, Josh said, at a meditation retreat when Michael was 18, uh, a Buddhist meditation retreat. Had you steered him in the direction of Buddhism, or do you know how he wound up uh, following that path? No, we were sort of maybe a bit metaphysically Christian, maybe, sort of like more New Agey, um, you know, like not particularly Buddhist, although again, the area which we're living and he was raised in has a very strong Buddhist flavor. And I think it was like 14 or 15, he just announced that he wanted to go to Barry and do the young adults retreat. And so, you know, me and his father thought, well, that's great. Like it looks really good. So off he went and, you know, it made a really, really big impact. And he you know, lately he had been more, um, he had been very much back to Ram Dass um, and had been a little bit more Hindu flavored. He had really was appreciating um, some of the philosophy of, of Hinduism. He wasn't necessarily like a Buddhist. He was someone who wanted to experience, like, like really wrestled with like, what is spiritual truth? You know, and Buddhism offered him a good pathway into that. But I don't think, I don't even know if he would say he was a Buddhist. He would, he had a sitting practice, but I don't, mm -hmm. I've never heard him tell anyone he was a Buddhist. That sounds about right. I, I don't identify as Buddhist. Rob, do you buy, identify as Buddhist? I don't use the word, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm a, I'm a, a fan. <laughs> I meditate. And I think, uh, you know, Buddhism really nails the problem and the solution, at least one approach to the solution, um, and is, and is uh, philosophically profound. Uh, part of it is just that, you know, I recognize that um, Buddhism in Asia is a rich religious tradition that's very different from the kind of Western, more secular version that you or I might be exposed to at in Barry, where Michael went at the Insight Meditation Society. Um, and and it, it almost seemed to me a little bit, I mean, I'm, 
you know, cultural appropriation isn't a big hobby horse of mine, but in, in, in this case, at least, it seems to me a little almost disrespectful to casually call myself a, a Buddhist when the word means such a different thing in, yes. in its yes. land of origin. And, and he was very um, kind of into personal development, too. And he really wants So one of the things I know that uh, Hinduism offered him. And again, this isn't Hinduism and sort of like how it's practiced in India, but this, but certain things maybe more yogic, let's say than Hindu is, you know, that, that you have these different phases in your life and you're called to express differently in different phases in your life. And the phase of life he was into in a more traditional yogic thing was supposed to be more materialistic. You were supposed to be grappling with issues of the world. You know, if you were a businessman, mm -hmm. issues of commerce, if you were a householder, issues of how you deal with your house, you know, your marriage, like, like that kind of full engagement with life and the stages that you were in was also really compelling to him. Now you are a yoga teacher, right, Donna? Yeah. Yeah. Were, were you a yoga teacher during Michael's childhood? Oh, yeah. I started teaching yoga and like before he was born. Um, well, that almost certainly had an impact, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's it's. Um, what can I tell you? I feel very much like um, Michael's very much was very much of my fiber, like a lot of the way. And I don't know how much that was. I, I don't think it was all just my influence as a parent. I think we're, we were very temperamentally and stylistically very similar. I also, I mean, I didn't go in that direction, but like I, you know, I don't so much anymore, but when I was younger, I read widely and deeply. And we often had, in his last years, you know, he had so many brilliant people he could have conversations with. But there were many years where he didn't have all these incredibly brilliant people. And me and him would have really deep and wide ranging conversations about hmm. often about the same things. Like, how do you create a society or forge a society that's democratic yet egalitarian? And but it's not pure materialism either. Nice getting back to what I was trying to say earlier before you came on that there was that that, that, that the, the subjective importance of consciousness was really essential to him. Oh, very much so. And and especially for a while, he was um, kind of getting more into like really hardcore, like Marxist thinking, but he was really coming full circle around to the consciousness aspect again and and really wondering, like, how do I fuse these things and really bring this to my listeners. And that's why I think in a way he was bringing it to his listeners without knowing, because, you know, I, as many people are saying, like, you know, Michael influenced my thinking, Michael was so brilliant. There was, there were people saying like the way he lived his life meant the world to me. The way he said we could carry on through life with positivity and joy, even though these horrible things are happening. That's what, meant the world to me. And um, so I think he already was infusing consciousness with political work um, more than he knew. Well, it must have been so great as his career unfolded to see it as, at least the way it seems to me, in some ways a straightforward expression of, um, you know, the values that you helped impart in him and the kind of and the kind of guidance you gave him 
um, you know, in, in, in terms of, of uh, even things like the books, it sounds like you steered him to at a very early age. I mean, I mean, you know, there's sometimes um, there's somebody you'll see somebody who's very successful and then you'll hear the background they came they came from. And you're like, wow, how did that happen? Or like, you know, or like they must have rejected their their, you know, they rebelled against their parents values. And that's what happened in, in this case. Uh, that seems to be kind of, um, you know, the opposite of the case. Well, what we did have was a lot of poverty. And mm. that was very hard and very difficult for my children. And Michael started talking about that in the last years. At first, he was very ashamed of it. So I'm really, you know, I'm college educated. And, you know, I'm, I know I'm very competent now. But when he was small, I really wanted to be a stay-at-home stay mom. And I really didn't know how competent I was. And his dad is sort of um, a visionary without ground. Let's just put it that way. So there were always like a lot of plates up in the air, a lot of ideas, a lot of possibilities, but rent didn't necessarily get paid. There wasn't necessarily heat all the time. Sometimes, you know, food might even be an issue. So my kids, and it got better as, you know, they got older, but when Michael was very small, it was super bad. But both of my kids really experienced poverty. I would say in retrospect, it was unnecessary poverty, but I didn't realize at the time it was unnecessary. And so um, what he did sort of rebel against was being poor. He didn't want to be poor. Um, and that informed him too. Like it wasn't all like, yes, like I really, and his father too, I'll say that, like we had very, very high senses of, of you know, kind of being a good person, being a righteous person. Um, but there were a lot of practical obstacles in life. And Michael felt, you know, like he didn't like that he was homeschooled. Like God knows why we homeschooled him. But he didn't like that when he came to a certain age. And, you know, he just, both of my kids really wanted a more like normal life. And we did not provide that for them. And, you know, in some ways, I'm sure it was a blessing. I mean, I think a lot of his compassion actually came from direct experience of his own suffering. He was empathic to other people suffering from an early age, but he also, you know, like when he first went to New York, he really, it was very tough for him financially. You know, he was like scrounging together work, living in pretty difficult situations with other people and, you know, I didn't have the resource, you know, I was like, yes, I was a yoga teacher. Great. You know, how much yoga teacher money yoga teachers make? Like it was not a brilliant career, uh, you know, option, especially then, like that was before it sort of became this kind of like thing where there's like celebrity yoga teachers. And, you know, when I became a yoga teacher, there were no yoga teacher trainings. It was like you studied yoga and you figured out how to put together something. And, um, I didn't have the fortitude, the wherewithal, the vision, the support to create that as a, a financial situation for my family, which I probably could have done and really regret not doing. And Michael and his sister lived with the reality of that failure of mine. I just well, want to jump in real briefly just to echo a little bit of that. Um, because as you know, Donna, when we were, when Michael and I were trying to write that book and Put together a, a consultancy it was right at the height of the subprime mortgage crisis and i couldn't remember i mean 
had he been out of college for a bit when around 2009 or was he, did he take time off before college or something? Because he didn't have any, basically he had no employment when he was coming to stay with me from, uh, from, from yeah. wherever we were staying in the Valley. And, and I had literally, I was living on about $50 a week um, wow. after rent. And, and the two of us were just, so I, you know, as you're talking about this, it's like, in a way he actually, he stabilized me through that time. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I really, uh, he was, you know, emotionally and, 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 and psychologically, it was just to have his, his friendship, his time, his, his presence with me. Um, it really did help me get through that. And I think it, it must've been born out of his experience earlier. Josh, did he seem confident about eventual, that, that it would work out? Like, is that part of the stability? He was more confident than you were that this would lead somewhere? He, oh no. yeah. Well, in terms, well, in terms of the company, uh, the the business idea, yes. He, he, uh, you know, I, I I never saw him lack confidence on his, like the the realization of what he wanted to do. Mm-hmm. He had he had utter confidence in himself, um, and the, in a way that I just didn't, <laughs> still don't probably. See, you know, he, I don't know. He would bring back and forth. He did a lot of work on himself to be able to really move with the truth of who he was. And I think, yes, he had a really deep sense of the value he could bring to the planet. Actualizing that value value was sometimes really hard. And he did a lot of internal work to make that real. Because there's, you know, poverty gives you trauma. It just does. And, And also the reasons that created a parental unit that are basically white middle class raised people to allow themselves to fall into poverty. Like there was other stuff going on there too. So, you know, that there's trauma there. And I think that um, one of the things that we were talking about near, you know, near the end is that being so important for the realization of a left project is for people to be kind to one another, but people really can only be kind to one another when they resolve all that internal fury Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. this is a pet pet theory of mine um and we can pick this up later bob but i actually have been wondering lately to what extent intrapersonal your your own trauma blunts or or disables your your capacity for cognitive empathy in a way Hmm. it totally does it absolutely does there's um Gosh, I wish I could be like Michael and reel off the names of the books very quickly, but there are definitely books on this. And actually the only one I'm thinking of that deals with this a little bit is you guys should know it. It's Buddha's brain. Yeah. The Rick Hansen book. Rick Hansen book. Yeah. And it's like, and I love how that book, he talks about different types of meditation actually are therapeutic for different types of tripping in the brain. But my understanding of what we can call trauma and trauma, you know, it could be a big thing, like, you know, someone who's in Lebanon and is being, you know, bombed or, you know, has literally lost everything in a war or in a street, or it could just be like more of like, like the kind of constriction we all experience as children where, you know, there's like a parent disapproves of us and we don't know why, or there's a smell in the house we don't like and we kind of constrict. But from a, you know, I consider myself more of a somatic movement therapist actually than a yoga teacher. Mm-hmm. And um, from a somatic movement and embodiment point of view, 
that constriction just doesn't let you live in your full self. And when you can't live in your full self, you shut off capacity. And so people who have, you know, a lot of trauma, and of course, one person's trauma is not another person's trauma, right? Some people are more resilient. We don't know why, but some people survive a lot and they don't have that same quality of trauma as someone who survives something lesser and is really traumatized. But when you have those kind of traumas and you have that constriction, it's almost like, you know, the, the green in the plant isn't as green. You know, the mm-hmm. warmth in another person's skin isn't as warm as someone who is able to process or um, be freed from that constriction. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I, I don't see how, you know, I mean, and, and I think like, like I try to be compassionate and I'm not as compassionate as my son was, I think. But I think like people, you know, I look at all these Trump supporters who I feel are, you know, aggressive and violent or, you know, like the border control agents beating up people in Portland and stuffing them in vans and rubber bullets and all that. And yeah, I think that must be trauma. When you say Michael did internal work, are you talking about like meditative work specifically? And like, and it he sounds did. like it was real. He, there was something he had to really kind of conquer almost. And you saw it happen. Am I reading too much into it? Yeah, no, he definitely had demons. I mean, he was, I think we all have demons and he was very aware of his demons. And I think the other thing is like, when you know what you want to do and who you want to be. Mm-hmm. If you go for that, more demons are going to come up. You know, it's like, it's like to really fully express yourself, all the shadows are going to pop out. And, you know, a lot of people can do okay and not deal with all their shadows. You know, it's not like you have to, but Michael's trajectory, like the amount of ground he had to cover to get where he felt he needed to be meant dealing with a lot of demons and meditation was a part of that. He did some Jungian psychotherapy. He did some homeopathy. He worked with a woman uh, for a number of years in Princeton, New Jersey, who did a lot of, I don't even know what she does, like emotional, psychological and energy work with him. Um, He just really took a holistic view, you know, like, like early on, he was very influenced by Ken Wilber, like in high school, he got really into Ken Wilber. And I think what kind of um, he retained from Ken Wilber is that it's never going to be one thing. There's all these different aspects of our humanity and we have to address those different aspects. Yeah, Michael and I would talk about that a lot. Wilber has this sort of taxonomy of stages of consciousness and uh, there's both beautiful assets that that come on board at certain stages of consciousness, but each stage of consciousness also has its unique forms of pathologies. And if you're not addressing the pathology at the right level, then, then it can really make things go pretty haywire. But, you know, and, and what you're saying, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to hear this corroboration because my sense is when we were working together with that, on that book and the business idea, and I think it was a combination of both our, our light vision and also our inner unresolved demons that actually sort of smashed up and broke up that whole idea um, in 2010 or 11. But he he seemed to go back to the Valley for a year and was, I I called it in the podcast, a fallow year where I, that was my sense. We were still in touch. And I I really sense he did dive very deeply into his shadow side 
the unresolved trauma and sort of unintegrated aspects of himself. And I do, I, I credit it too. I, I, I point, I point to that. I think, I think it was that deep work that was able to give him the energy and the vitality to, uh, to take off to the stars like he just did. Yeah, I, I totally think so. I think that, uh, you know, that is the something that he was coming and I don't want to like create words for him because he was still like forming it, but the sort of like hyper materialism of the left. So like sometimes it would be like, well, the left doesn't really claim morality, but it's not really morality. What the left needs to claim is that living experience of generating life from coming at the hard, coming into um, experience with the hard parts of ourselves and meeting those hard, hard parts in such a way that we have more clarity, we have more presence, we have more authority. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's harking me back to Wilbur too, because I remember when I read Wilbur, you know, years ago as well. And I remember the one thing that gave me heart from Wilbur is he talked about as you go up the evolutionary steps, more, you actually have more power with less people, you know, because it's like as you evolve. So I don't know if it was green or turquoise or whatever his paradigm is, because I've definitely been out of Wilburland, but that you needed concentration of those people to make powerful change societally because just you had that much more maturity and inner authority. And that gave me heart intellectually. And I felt like Michael really embodied that. Yeah. When you mentioned clarity and presence, you know, um, the email he sent me about what we were going to talk about uh, on July, I guess, 30th, 31st, um, mentioned both cognitive empathy and relatedly non-reactive politics. And, and I'm pretty sure I know what he had in mind there is like, having enough clarity and presence and calm to deal with a political opposition in a productive way and not be too reactive. And Trump is just such a perfect example of somebody you don't want to be too reactive to. I mean, there's plenty of stuff he does that needs to be reacted against. But so often it seems that if you if you react without reflection, you'll just be kind of playing into his hands. He's kind of trolling you and so on. Um, and Michael and I talked about that uh, a little uh, in a conversation I had with him on my show. But 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 now I have a clearer sense, having talked to you, Donna, and and also you, Josh, about how he built toward that that um, that capacity. It's a hard thing to develop. Yeah, you know, there was a, um, a video tribute memorial to him from, you know, different colleagues. And so Glenn Greenwald, I don't mm-hmm. know if you're familiar with him. So yeah, Glenn, I know Glenn. Yeah. So one of the things he shared was how often Michael would disagree with him. <laughs> and he would think like, oh, no, you know, Brooks is disagreeing with me. But he said he always gained from it and it was never personal. So that, you know, and that's very much... Um, like a non-reactivity with the clarity, like it mm-hmm. wasn't personal, but it needed to be said. So it was said. Yeah. Glenn is one of many people who, who paid such nice tribute to, to Michael yeah. um, on, on, uh, on Twitter. And, and, and Glenn has some of that same character. I mean, people might not realize it to, to hear Glenn because he gets, <clears throat> he can be pretty cutting in the way he deals with the opposition 
But I think he had that ability um, to to actually understand different perspectives in the way that that uh, that Michael did, and to appreciate how someone who you didn't agree with was actually contributing to the evolution of your own thought, which I think Michael really had. Oh yeah, you know he was interviewing uh, Pepe Gonzalez, and he's a uh journalist from maybe Brazil. I think he's Brazilian, but he's lived in Asia for years and years. So he's sort of a, he's sort of a hippie, you know, he's like really into sort of maybe was originally on the hippie trail in Asia, definitely has some Buddhist kind of thing going on and some maybe Shinto thing, but he's also very realistic about China in a way that Michael was very fascinated about, like very different perspective on China than most of us would hear. And so Michael starts getting completely interested in China. Now, Michael thinks Henry Kissinger is a war criminal, but he's reading Henry Kissinger's thoughts on China because, I mean, that whole opening of China was Henry Kissinger. Right. He's able to contain Henry Kissinger's a war criminal. He should be imprisoned. And I have to read this book because this is going to give me so much understanding of China. Right. And drop one, th- one thought on that is that coming back to the idea of Michael doing his deep work and integrating his shadow. I think part of the reason, the, the value in that is that if you can do it yourself, you're better able to hold it externally too. Like you can hold the, the contradictions in, in, a, in a being and not, you know, as Bob would say, you know, fly off and, 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 and make them essentially bad. Yeah. By the way, Bob, love your books. Non-zero. Oh. And, uh, uh, what is it, the battle for God or the... That's the evolution terrible. of God. Yes, the evolution of God. Those books have. Um, I mean, I read them a while ago, but they were great. Oh, well, God bless you. I didn't. I had no idea. Oh yeah. Gosh, I would have. I would have had you on for the whole show if I had known that. Well, <laughs> and and you, you, Mike, Bob, you may not know this either, but uh, there was a in honor of Michael's birthday today, which we should acknowledge. We should. Um, it's, uh, yeah, today is. Yeah, he'll be, be 37 today. And someone put together a, a video clip of 37 books that they, his friends and family felt that Michael would endorse. And the evolution of God was, I don't maybe 12 or 13th on that, oh, wow. on that list. Well, we did them alphabetically. But yeah, we should have put the Buddhist playbook on that list, too. We're going to do another list. We'll have to get the Buddhist playbook on that one. <laughs> We should tell people how to get that too, by the way. Yeah. Now there is, you could, Amazon, there's a paperback available on Amazon, but Josh, there's also like an audio version and a. So yeah, it, it, basically we self-published it and I, I forget what happened over the years, but the, the self-publishing mechanism sort of died off and we just digitized it. It sits on my website as an ebook with accompanying guided meditations and a workbook. Um, it's a $10 package. And, 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 and I know, I know, I, I, I'll figure out how to get hard copies again. But um, the thing is, uh, all proceeds, I should say, will be donated to a foundation that I think you're in the process of figuring out, right, Donna? We're in the process of figuring out a lot. But yeah. yeah. So we'll stay tuned. We'll stay tuned on that. You know, going into schools and, and just making it more accessible to the public. Because another thing, like when you talk about like emotional intelligence and meeting your shadow, so one of the other things, so Michael used to joke to me that his listenership was a lot of like young guys and middle-aged women, like his mom was <laughs> listening in multiple forms and then younger men. And the thing about younger men is a lot of those younger men were into this like intellectual dark web or like mm. it's not as popular anymore, but that pickup artist stuff, like pretty misogynistic, very right wing, not that thoughtful. And there's 
so many men who have been writing like I was caught in that loop of this, you know, not so brilliant, but thinks they're brilliant, right wing propaganda, you know, annoyance. And I think that what, why Michael could speak to people that get caught in that is because he didn't judge them. Like he could get like, oh yeah, like of course the left can be snarky and judgmental and moralistic. And of course you feel marginalized and frightened because the world's changed so much. Like those are very real things and he can validate that and he can make fun of people. And, you know, that is, that's like a way of connecting. And so that to me, you know, it wasn't like, like Michael's, you know, he wasn't a mean person, but he could make fun. Mm-hmm. And he could let people make fun of him. And yeah. That's, that's, that's very hard. To, yeah. to I mean, to, 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 to like it or to, or to not hate it. Yeah. I mean, Sam Cedar, who he did the majority report with at the memorial we had for Michael, Sam Cedar said some of the best, and he was a professional comedian. He was in comedic movies. He's like, he used to, you know, hang out with, with like people I don't know, but I guess are pretty famous, like Mark Marin and Sarah Silverman. And, but he said he did his, some of his best comedy of his career just spontaneously with Michael on the majority report. Hmm. And that kind of comedy can reach a lot of people who feel like they would never be like good enough or pure enough to be, you know, politically correct enough to be on the left, you know, or good enough people. Well, I was telling Josh, I think this was before you came on that, that um, I today re-listened to uh, one of the times I had Michael on my show. I, uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe, maybe I am repeating this to you and, and you were on, but I was just struck by how easy it was to fall into conversation with him, how easy it was to like him uh, and, and to just, and to kind of joke around. And, yeah. and, and for that, and for that casual conversation to segue into a truly productive, you know, kind of sharp and in some ways deep conversation. Um, I just, I just felt, you know, I wish I'd known him better, um, listening to that. Yeah, no, that was, you know, all right. I'll tell you when he was a little kid, you know, pretty little, not that little, because he was listening to NPR, but he used to flip between NPR and Howard Stern. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. That, that was it. Like, you know, Howard Stern, you know, whatever you think about him, he knew how to work the audience with comedy mm-hmm. and, and really enjoy. And, and the other thing is, and then about four years ago, he sent me a Howard Stern interview with Neil Young that blew my mind. So I'm like a really deep Neil Young fan, you know, and Howard Stern spent like an hour and a half probing the songs, the meanings, the sensitivities, the nuances. And I'm thinking like, oh, my gosh, that's what he did. He like gets into conversation, makes Neil Young feel really comfortable, you know, jokes around. And then it was like such a deep interview. Yeah. So Michael learned from Howard Stern. <laughs> well, uh, I, is there any anything else? I mean, it's, it's so nice of you to have taken the time, especially... Yeah. I mean, this soon after the after the, you know, uh, after well, his passing and on his birthday. Yeah, I, I well, you know, Josh um, was an important person in Michael's life. Um, 
that Buddhist playbook was very significant and they're, they're kind of, uh, I don't know, is it fair to say positive materialistic Buddhism, Josh? <laughs> I have to think about that. Oh, yeah. So I don't know exactly how to frame it, but like one of the things that Michael resonates with that I think resonates with you is to not be like detached from the world as a Buddhist, but to be really engaged in the mm. world. Yeah, you know, when I my my phrase that I borrowed from Stephen Batchelor, who Bob, you know, um, so I don't identify as a Buddhist. It's more a, a, a Buddhist practitioner. I'm sorry, a Dharma practitioner, putting trying to trying to actualize and engage with the teachings in in, in your day to day, and not not wear it as a as a ritual that you sort of follow along with. Um, well, it's challenging to remain engaged in the world. The the thing that you're saying, um, uh, you know. Uh, Michael did, Donna. I, I, I mean, I mean, if you're going to get deeply into Buddhist practice, it can happen with people that you get kind of disengaged because uh, Buddhism is at one level teaching yeah. you how to cope with adversity, and and there are some people who take that in the direction of kind of like, well, I, you know, who's it's hard to change the world. Um, I'm I've learned how to cope with it. And it's it's a real challenge to kind of um, take take the, the the virtues of Buddhist practice, you know, the calm, the clarity, um, and, and remain engaged, re remain you know, kind of passionately engaged in the world. I think that's in a way uh, one of the biggest challenges of 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 the practice. And he was you know, up for challenge and just to kind of cycle back being up for those kind of challenges means meeting the shadow. Mm -hmm. And that was just a really big value for him. Yeah. So. Okay. Well, thank you so much. I, I, um, tell me, Donna. Um, well, a couple of things. When you um, learn more about what you're going to do in the way of setting up a foundation or whatever, you know, please be sure and let us know and we'll, We'll publicize it uh, however we can. Um, is there a place where people can find any of your work, your whether your yoga practice? Sure. Or... Well, I have a website. I mean, I do work with people virtually. Originalbodywisdom.com is my okay. Originalbodywisdom.com. So, um, you know, it's, it's, since COVID, I've been doing some Zoom work, and it's actually surprising me how much I can do, which is interesting. And there's a lot of information on my website. And then my daughter, so TMBS, the Michael Brooks show has still been going on with uh, David Griscom and Matt Leck. And my daughter's been sitting in Michael's seat, Leisha okay. Brooks. So you guys can tune into TMBS. It's on every Tuesday night. And it's sort of, uh, you know, in, in uh, you know, we're just kind of seeing what's happening um, in terms of how it's going to evolve. But Matt and David are very committed to keeping the show going. And um, Alicia's feeling, my daughter's feeling a lot like, I think it's just really connecting her with Michael. And it's a very different kind of perspective for her because she doesn't have the wideness of Michael. Um, so she's inviting a lot of people on to more educate her rather mm -hmm. than have dialogues. But she's funny. She's funny and she's light. And uh, it's, she's been getting a lot of great feedback. And um, I certainly mentioned to her that you were slated to be a guest as well. And I'm sure she could talk with Josh about, you know, connecting with you.
That would be great. And and people should know that they can follow the the, the Michael Brooks show on Twitter. It, it's at TMBS. And that way they'll know well, what's coming up and well, and yeah. and when they can see your daughter and, and so on. Um, so, yeah. And as I said, um, Josh and I will be back next Thursday at eight uh, to try to delve uh, a little more deeply into cognitive empathy. Um, Donna, obviously, um, you know, we, we uh, all send our condolences, but I also want to reiterate uh, our gratitude. Um, you know, I said at the beginning, thanks for bringing Michael into the world. It's more evident to me now having talked to you than it was at the beginning, what a role you played in in making him what he became and, and the productive force in the world that he became. And, um, you know, in so many ways, his legacy is, is going to live on. And so uh, I just want to thank you again for taking the time tonight, uh, but but also for all all you put you put into into Michael all along the way. Thank you. I appreciate you seeing that and sharing that. Thank you a lot. And thanks for having me. Oh, um, I'll connect with you again. And Josh, good to see you. And yeah, I couldn't say it better. Thank you, Bob, for those words. And, and thank you, Donna. You're welcome. Okay. Well, we'll we'll see you both.